Chapter 5 of Pilgrimage to Al Madina and Mecca. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by The Biggest on the 20th of February 2010. Chapter 5 of Personal Narrative of a Pilgrimage to Al Madina and Mecca by Sir Richard Francis Burton. Chapter 5 The Ramasan. This year the Ramasan befell in June, and the fearful infliction was that blessed month, making the Muslim unhealthy and unamiable. For the space of sixteen consecutive hours and a quarter, we were forbidden to eat, drink, smoke, snuff, and even to swallow our saliva designedly. I say forbidden, for although the highest orders of Turks, the class is popularly described as Turcofino, mangia poco e bevevino, may break the ordinance in strict privacy. Popular opinion would condemn any open infraction of it with uncommon severity. In this, as in most human things, how many are there who hold that pêche en secret n'est pas pêche, ce n'est que le clé qui fait le crime? The middle and lower ranks observe the duties of the season, however arduous, with exceeding zeal. Of all who suffered severely from such total abstinence, I found but one patient who would e eat even to save his life. And among the vulgar, sinners who habitually drink when they should pray, will fast and perform their devotions for the Ramasan. Like the Italian, the Anglo-Catholic and the Greek fasts, the chief effect of the blessed month upon true believers is to darken their tempers into positive gloom. The voices, never of the softest, acquire, especially after noon, a terribly harsh and creaking tone. The men curse one another and beat the women. The women slap and abuse the children, and these in their turn cruelly entreat and use bad language to the dogs and cats. You can scarcely spend ten minutes in any populous part of the city without hearing some violent dispute. The caracoon or station houses are filled with lords who have administered an undue dose of chastisement to their ladies and with ladies who have scratched, bitten, and otherwise injured the bodies of their lords. The mosques are crowded with a sulky, grumbling population, making themselves offensive to one another on earth whilst working their way to heaven, and in the shade, under the outer walls, the little boys who have been expelled to church attempt to forget their miseries in spiritless play. In the bazaars and streets, pale, long-drawn faces, looking for the most part intolerably cross, catch your eye, and at this season a stranger will sometimes meet with positive incivility. A shopkeeper, for instance, usually says when he rejects an insufficient offer, Yafta Allah, Allah opens. During the Ramasan he will grumble about the bore of Gashim or Johnny Ross, and gruffly tell you not to stand there wasting his time. But as a rule, the shops are either shut or destitute of shopmen, merchants will not purchase, and students will not study. In fine, the Ramasan for many classes is one-twelfth of the year wantonly thrown away. The following is the routine of a fast day. About half an hour after midnight, the gun sounds its warning to faithful men that it is time to prepare for the sahur, early breakfast or morning meal. My servant then wakes me, if I have slept, brings water for ablution, spreads the sufra or leather cloth, and places before me certain remnants of the evening's meal. It is some time before the stomach becomes accustomed to such hours, but
When the matters of appetite, habit is everything, and for health's sake one should strive to eat as plentifully as possible. Then sounds the salam or blessing from the Prophet, an introduction to the call of morning prayer. Smoking sundry pipes with tenderness, as if taking leave of a friend, and until the second gone, fired at about half past two a.m., gives the imsak, the order to abstain from food, I await the asan, which in this month is called somewhat earlier than usual. Then, after a ceremony termed the niya, purpose of fasting, I say my prayers and prepare for repose. At 7 a.m., the labors of the day begin for the working classes of society. The rich spend the night in reveling and rest in down from dawn till noon. The first thing on rising is to perform the wusu, a lesser ablution, which invariably follows sleep in a reclining position. Without this, it would be improper to pray, to enter the mosques, to approach a religious man, or to touch the Quran. A few pauper patients usually visit me at this hour, report the phenomena of their complaints, which they do, by the by, with unpleasant minuteness of detail, and receive fresh instructions. At 9 a.m., Sheikh Mohammed enters with lecture written upon his wrinkled brow, or I pick him up on the way and proceed straight to the mosque, al-Assar. After three hours' hard reading, with little interruption from bystanders, this is long vacation, most of the students being at home, comes to call to midday prayer. The founder of al-Islam ordained but a few devotions for the morning, which is the business part of the Eastern day. But during the afternoon and evening, they succeed one another rapidly, and their length increases. It is then time to visit my rich patients, and afterwards, by way of accustoming myself to the sun, to wander among the bookshops for an hour or two, assemble to idle in the street. At 3 p.m. I return home, recite the afternoon prayers, and reapply myself to study. This is the worst part of the day. In Egypt, the summer nights and mornings are generally speaking pleasant, but the forenoons are sultry and the afternoons are serious. A wind wafting, the fine dust and furnace heat of the desert blows over the city. The ground returns with interest the showers of caloric from above, and not a cloud or a vapor breaks the dreary expanse of splendor on high. There being no such comforts as Indian tatties, and few but the wealthiest houses boasting glass windows, the interior of your room is somewhat more fury than the street. Weakened with fasting, the body feels the heat trebly, and the disordered stomach almost affects the brain. Every minute is counted with morbid fixity of idea as it passes on towards the blessed sunset, especially by those whose terrible lot is manual labor at such a season. A few try to forget their afternoon miseries in slumber, but most people take the kailula or siesta shortly after the meridian, holding it unwholesome to sleep late in the day. As the Maghrib, the sunset hour approaches, and how slowly it comes, the town seems to recover from a trance. People flock to the windows and balconies in order to watch the moment of their release. Some pray, others tell the beads, while others gathering together in groups or paying visits exert themselves to while away the lacking time. Oh, gladness, at length it sounds, that gone from the citadel, simultaneously rises the sweet cry of the Muezzin, calling men to prayer, and a second cannon booms from the Abbasiyah palace. Al-Fitah, Al-Fitah, fast-breaking, fast-breaking, shout the people, and a hum of joy rises from the silent city. Your acute ears waste not a moment in conveying the delightful intelligence to your parched tongue, empty stomach, and languid limbs. You exhaust a pot full of water, 
no matter its size. You clap hurried hands for a pipe. You order coffee and provide it with least comforts. You sit down and calmly contemplate the coming pleasures of the evening. Poor men eat heartily at once. The rich break their fast with a light meal, a little bread and fruit, fresh or dry, especially watermelon, sweetmeats, or such digestible dishes as muhalaba, a thin jelly of milk, starch, and rice flour. They then smoke a pipe, drink a cup of coffee or a glass of sherbet, and recite the evening prayers. For the devotions of this hour are delicate things, and while smoking a first pipe after sixteen hours' abstinence, time easily slips away. Then they sit down to the fatur, breakfast, the meal of the twenty-four hours, and eat plentifully if they would avoid illness. There are many ways of spending a Ramadan evening. The Egyptians have a proverb like ours of the Salonitan school. After al-Ghada, rest, if it be but for two minutes. After al-Asha, walk, if it be but two steps. The streets are now crowded with good-humoured throng of strollers. The many bend on pleasure, the few winding the way to the mosque where the imam recites Taravih prayers. They saunter about the accustomed pipe in hand, shopping for the souls are open till a late hour. Or they sit in crowds at the coffee house entrance, smoking shishas, water pies, chatting and listening to storytellers, singers, and itinerant preachers. Here, a barefooted girl trills and quavers, accompanied by a noisy tambourine and a scrannel pipe of abominable discordance in honor of a perverse saint whose corpse insisted upon being buried inside some respectable man's dwelling house. The scene reminds you strongly of the sonors of Brittany and its Ampognari from the Abruzian highlands backpiping before the Madonna. There a tall, gaunt Maghrabi displays upon a square yard of dirty paper certain lines on blood supposed to represent the venerable Kaaba and collects coppers to defray the expenses of his pilgrimage. A steady stream of lounges sets through the principal thoroughfares towards the Asbakia gardens, which skirt the Frank Porter. There they sit in the moonlight, listening to Greek and Turkish bands, or making merry with cakes, toasted grains, coffee, sugar drinks, and the broad pleasantries of Karagius, the local punching duty. Here the scene is less thoroughly oriental than within the city, but the appearance of frank dress amongst the varieties of Eastern costume, the moonlit sky and the light mist hanging over the deep shade of the acacia trees, whose rich-scented yellow-white blossoms are popularly compared to the old Pasha's beard, make it passing picturesque. And the traveller from the Far East remarks with wonder the presence of certain ladies, whose only mark of modesty is the burqa or face veil. Upon this laxity the police looks with lenient eyes, inasmuch as, until very lately, it paid a respectable tax to the state. Returning to the Muslim quarter, you are bewildered by its variety of sounds. Everyone talks, and talking here is always in extremes, either in a whisper or in a scream. Gesticulation excites the lungs, and strangers cannot persuade themselves that men so converse without being or becoming furious. All the street cries, too, are in a soprano key. In thy protection! In thy protection! shouts a fellow peasant to a sentinel who is flocking him towards the station house, followed by a tale of women screaming, Ya Garati, Ya Dawati, Ya Hashrati, Ya Nidamati! Oh my calamity, oh my shame! The boys have elected a pasha, whom they are conducting in procession with wisps of straw for mashals or cressets, 
and outrun it, all who sang with ten schoolboy power, Oh thy right, oh thy left, over oh, thy face, over oh, thy heel, oh thy back, thy back, cries the panting footman, who, huge torch on shoulder, runs before the grandee's carriage. Bless the prophet and get out of the way, O oh, Allah, bless him, respond the good Muslims, some shrinking up to the walls to avoid the stick, others rushing across the road so as to give themselves every chance of being knocked down. The donkey boy beats his ass with a heavy palm cudgel. He fears no treadmill here, cursing him at the top of his voice for a pander, a Jew, a Christian, and a son of the one-eyed whose portion is eternal punishment. O chickpeas, O pips, sings the vendor of parched grains, rattling the unsavory load in his basket. Out of the way and say, there is one God, pants the industrious water carrier, laden with a skin, fit burden for a buffalo. Sweet water and gladden thy soul, O lemonade, pipes the seller of that luxury, clanging his brass cups together. Then come the beggars, intensely oriental. My supper is in Allah's hands, my supper is in Allah's hands. Whatever thou givest, that will go with thee, turns the old vagrant, whose wallet, perhaps, contains more provision than the basket of many a respectable shopkeeper. Nal Abuk Rooks thy father, O brother of a naughty sister, is the response of some petulant Greek to the touch of the old man's staff. The grave is darkness, and good deeds are its lamp, sings the blind women, wrapping two sticks together. Upon Allah, upon Allah, O daughter, cry the bystanders, when the obstinate bint, daughter, of sixty years, seizes their hands, and will not let go, without extorting a farthing. Bring the sweet, that is fire, and take the full, that is empty cup. You fiercely cry the long moustache, fierce borrowed honours to the coffee-house keeper, who stands by them, charmed by the rhyming repartee that flows so readily from their lips. Hanian, may it be pleasant to thee, is the signal for encounter. Though drinkest for ten, replies the other, instead of returning the usual religious salutation. I am the cook, and thou art the hen, is the rejoinder, a tart one. Nay, I am the thick one, and thou art the fin, resumes the first speaker, and so on, till they come to equivoques which will not bear a literal English translation. And sometimes high above the hubbub rises the melodious voice of the blind Muezzin, who from his balcony in the beetling tower rings forth, He ye to devotion, he ye to salvation. And at morning prayer time he adds, Devotion is better than sleep, devotion is better than sleep. Then good Muslims piously stand up and mutter previous to prayer, Here am I at thy call, O Allah, here am I at thy call. Sometimes I walked with my friend to the citadel and sat upon a high wall, one of the outworks of Muhammad Ali's mosque, enjoying a view which seen by night, when the summer moon is near the full, has a charm no power of language can embody. Or escaping from stifled Cairo's filth, we pass through the gate of victory into the wilderness beyond the city of the dead. Seated upon some mound of ruins, we inhaled the fine air of the desert, inspiriting as a cordial, when starlight and dew mist diversified the scene, which by day is one broad sea of yellow loam with billows of chalk rock, thinly covered by a film-like spray of sand surging and floating in the fury wind. There, within a mile of crowded life, all is desolate, 
The town walls seem crumbling to decay. The hovels are tenantless and the paths untrodden. Behind you lies the world, before you the thousand tombstones, ghastly in their whiteness, while beyond them the tall dark forms of the Mamluk soldans' towers rise from the low and hollow ground like the spirits of kings guarding ghostly subjects in the shadowy realm. No less weird than the scene are the sounds. The hyenas laugh, the howl of the wild dog, and the screech of the low-flying owl. Or we spend the evening at some takia, the wacious oratory, generally preferring that called the Gulshani, near the Muayyid mosque outside the Mutawali saintly door. There's nothing attractive in its appearance. You mount a flight of ragged steps and enter a low veranda enclosing an open stuccoed terrace, where stands the holy man's domed tomb. The two stories contain small dark rooms in which the Dawaishas dwell, and the ground floor doors open into the veranda. During the fast months, sickers are rarely performed in the takiyas. The inmates pray there in congregations, or they sit conversing upon benches in the shade. And a curious medley of men they are, composed of the choicest vagabonds from every nation of al-Islam. Beyond this, I must not describe the takiya or the doings there, for the path of the Dawaish may not be trodden by feet profane. Curious to see something of my old friends the Persians, I call with Haj Wali upon one Mirza Hussein, who by virtue of his dignity as Shabandar, he calls himself Consul General, ranks with the dozen little quasi-diplomatic kings of Cairo. He suspends over his lofty gate a signboard in which the lion and the sun, Iran's proud ensign, are by some Egyptian lemnus art metamorphosed into a preternatural tabby cat, grasping a scimitar, with the jolly fat face of a gay young lady, curls and all complete, wrestling fondly upon her pet's concave back. This high dignitary's reception room was a courtyard subdio, fronting the door were benches and cushions composing the satyr or high place, with the parallel rows of divans spread down the less dignified sides, and the line of naked boards, the lowest seats, ranged along the door wall. In the middle stood three little tables supporting three huge lanterns. As is the size, so is the owner's dignity. Each of which contained three of the largest Firmacidi candles. The Hajj and I entered, took our seats upon the side benches with humility, and exchanged salutations with the great man on the satra. When the Dabar or Levi was full, in stalked the Mirza, and all arose as he calmly divested himself of his shoes, and with all due solemnity, ascended his proper cushion. He is a short, thin man, about thirty-five, with regular features and the usual preposterous lambskin cap and beard. Two peak black cones, at least four feet in length, measured from the tips, resting on slender basement of pale yellow face. After a quarter of an hour of ceremonies, polite mutterings and low bendings with the right hand on the left breast, the Mirza's pipe was handed to him first in token of his dignity. At Teheran he was probably an underclerk in some government office. In due time we were all served with kalyans, Persian hookahs, and coffee by the servants, who made royal conscious whenever they passed the great man, and more than once the janissary, in dignity of belt and crude favor, entered the court to quicken our awe. The conversation was the usual oriental thing. It is, for instance, understood that you have seen strange things in strange lands. Voyaging is victory, quotes the Mirza. The quotation is a hackneyed one, 
but it steps forth majestic as to pause and emphasis. Rarely you reply with equal ponderousness of pronunciation and novelty of citation. In leaving home one learns life, yet a journey is a bit of janum. Or if you are a physician, the lieu commun will be. Little learned doctors the body destroy, little learned parsons the soul destroy. To which you will make answer, if you would pass for a man of belletta by the well-known lines. Of the truth, the physician hath power with drugs, which long as the patients have life, may relieve him. But the tale of our days being duly told, the doctor is daft, and his drugs deceive him. After sitting there with dignity, like the rest of the guests, I took my leave, delighted with the truly Persian apparatus of the scene. The Mirza, having no salary, lives by fees extorted from his subjects, who pay rather than lack protection, and his dragoman for a counterfeit will sell their interests shamelessly. He is a hidalgo of blue blood and pride, pompousness and poverty. There is not a sheet of writing paper in the consulate when they want one a farthing is sent to the grocer's. Yet the consul drives out in an old carriage with four outriders, two tall cabmen preceding and two following the crazy vehicle. And the Egyptians laugh heartily at this display, being accustomed by Muhammad Ali to consider all such parade obsolete. About half an hour before midnight sounds the abra, or call to prayer, at which time the latest wanderers return home to prepare for the sahua, their dawn meal. You are careful on the way to address each sentinel with a peace be upon thee, especially if you have no lantern, otherwise you may chance to sleep in the guardhouse. And, Shimong Pesang, you cannot but stop to gaze at streets, as little like what civilized Europe understands by that name, as is an Egyptian temple to the new houses of parliament. There are certain scenes commonly termed kinspeckle, which print themselves upon memory, and which endure as long as memory lasts. He found a cloud bursting upon the Alps, a night of stormy darkness of the Cape, an African tornado, and perhaps, most awful of all, a solitary journey over the sandy desert. Of this class is a stroll through the thoroughfares of old Cairo by night. All is squalor in the brilliancy of noonday. In darkness you see nothing but a silhouette. When, however, the moon is high in the heavens, and the summer stars rain light upon God's world, there is something not of earth in the view. A glimpse at the strip of pale blue sky above scarcely reveals three hours of rest. In many places the interval is less. Here the copings meet, and there the outriggings of the houses seem to interlace. Now they are parted by a pencil of snowy sheen, then by a flood of silvery splendor, while under the projecting cornices, and the huge hanging balcony windows of fantastic woodwork, supported by gigantic brackets and corbels, and on the deep verandas and gateways, vast enough for behemoth to pass through, and in blind wines and long cul-de-sacs, lie patches of thick darkness made visible by the dimmest of oil lamps. The arch is a favorite feature. In one place you see it, a mere skeleton rib, opening into some huge deserted hall. In another, the ochre is full of fretted stone and wood-carved like lacework. Not a line is straight. The tall dead walls of the mosques slope over their massy buttresses, and the thin minarets seem about to fall across your path. The cornices project crookedly from the houses, while the great gables 
stand merely by force of cohesion, and that the line of beauty may not be wanting, the graceful bending form of the palm, on whose topmost feathers, quivering in the cool night breeze, the moonbeam glistens, springs from a gloomy mound, or from the darkness of a mass of houses almost level with the ground. Briefly, the whole view is so strange, so fantastic, so ghostly, that it seems preposterous to imagine that in such places human beings like ourselves can be born and live through life and carry out the command, increase and multiply and die. End of chapter 5 Recording by Rebecca C. 20th of February 2010 Copenhagen, Denmark